0: Hello and welcome to the Ideas Matter podcast, where we bring you all the talks that you missed at our events. I'm Felice Basball with the Ideas Matter Charity. In this episode, we've got the lecture, What Does It Mean to Be Human in an Age of AI? from the 2023 Living Freedom Summer School. In the past year, AI has gone from an interesting side issue to dominating public discourse. Some people welcome the new possibilities that these tools seem to offer, but others fear the consequences, from students getting AI to write their homework to artists and journalists losing their livelihoods. So, what is the history of AI, and how has the curtain situation come about? And how should we understand AI today? Will generative AI add to or detract from the meaning in our lives? And, you know, what does it mean to be human when it seems so much of what we do can be replaced by machines? To unpick this complicated topic and its fascinating history, we've got Sandy Starr, the deputy director of the Progress Educational Trust and author of the Letter on Liberty AI Separating Man from Machine. I really hope you enjoy this episode.
1: So I actually want to take a step back from the latest headlines and hype and hopes and fears about AI and look at the larger historical context. Because I think the history of computing in general and what we call AI in particular is a history of what it's thought possible for humans and indeed non-humans to know. And to explain what I mean by that, uh, I'd like to begin by contrasting three mottos from different periods in history. And the first motto uh, is the very inspiring Latin motto, Sapera Ode, which means dare to know. And nowadays, this motto can be found in the coat of arms of the University of Staffordshire in Stoke, Is there anybody here from that university or who went there? Well, if there had been, I would hope that they would feel suitably inspired by that motto. Uh, It's a motto that was originally coined by the Roman poet Horace in the first century BC. And then the motto was revived by Immanuel Kant in the 18th century in his essay, What is Enlightenment? And the motto ended up becoming something of a rallying cry for the age of enlightenment as a whole. Second, consider the rather less inspiring Latin motto, ignoramus et ignorabimus, which means we do not know and will not know. And this motto was coined uh, in the 19th century by a famous German physiologist with a French name called Émile Dubois Raymond. And as you can probably gather... Emile Dubois-Raymond was rather more pessimistic about what can be known. And so he reacted against Sapera Orde by saying, ignoramus et ignorabimus. Third, consider the German motto, wir müssen wissen, wir werden wissen, which means we must know, we shall know. This last motto was coined by the important German thinker. David Hilbert, as a rejoinder to the pessimism of Emile Dubois-Raymond. And this motto, Wir müssen wissen Wir werden wissen is actually engraved on Hilbert's tombstone in Göttingen, which you can go and visit if you're interested. Now, David Hilbert was probably the world's most prominent mathematician in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And if you Google him later, you may find a famous picture of him in which he's wearing quite a dapper, broad-brimmed hat. And that photo was taken for one of the postcards of faculty members that were sold to students at his university because that's the sort of reverence in which intellectuals like Hilbert were held in those days. You might have a postcard of David Hilbert on your desk looking at you, spurring you on to new heights of knowledge as you studied. And Hilbert was at the forefront of a great effort in the fields of mathematics and logic and philosophy to place human knowledge on firm and rigorous foundations via which some of the profoundest and most enduringly mysterious questions might be given clear answers. And for a sustained period in the late 19th and early 20th century, that project made great gains and yielded great insights, and the optimism of the project even survived, albeit narrowly, the great uh, carnage and devastation that were wrought by the First World War. But then it transpired that these new foundations that were being established for human knowledge by people including David Hilbert in Göttingen and Bertrand Russell in Cambridge, had weaknesses. Some intellectual torpedoes were fired during the 1930s that brought the enterprise crashing down. Fatal arguments that uh, answered David Hilbert's motto, we must know, we shall know, by saying, actually, you can't and you won't. And the two most fatal torpedoes were launched by young polymaths who were just in their 20s. Kurt Gödel in Vienna and Alan Turing in Cambridge. And you may or may not have heard of Girdle, but I certainly hope you've heard of Turing. Now, the two most famous biographical facts about Alan Turing are that he did the authorities in this country an immense service by playing a leading role in code-breaking efforts during the Second World War, and that the authorities in this country then repaid him for his service by doing him the immense disservice of prosecuting him for his homosexuality and forcing him on pain of imprisonment to take hormones that lowered his libido and feminised his body, which is the tragic context in which he died, probably by suicide, when he was barely into his 40s. But rather than dwelling on those aspects of Alan Turing's life, I want to do him the credit of engaging with his ideas, And in particular, I want to talk about his two most famous papers. The 1936 paper, which laid the basis for modern electronic computing, in which he invented the abstract model of a computer that we now call a Turing machine, and the 1950 paper, in which he paved the way for today's AI and invented what we now call the Turing test. So starting with Turing's 1936 paper it is no exaggeration to say that this paper changed the world. The reason why all of you, the younger ones anyway, uh, have grown up with electronic devices, such as those now uh, in your pockets, whose use is second nature to you, and I mean the phrase second nature quite literally, can be traced back to the fact that Turing wrote that paper in 1936. So there's a sense in which we're all now living in Turing's World, or Turing's Cathedral, as the science historian George Dyson calls it in his fascinating book of that title. Turing's 1936 paper is famously entitled On Computable Numbers, but that's not its full title. Its full title is On Computable Numbers with an Application to the Entscheidungsproblem." And what is the Entscheidungsproblem? It's a problem posed by David Hilbert, together with his protege, Wilhelm Ackermann, that had to be resolved in a certain way in order for Hilbert's hoped for foundations of knowledge to be secured. And Alan Turing was one of two people, the other one being Alonzo Church, who proved, at roughly the same time, that the Entscheidungsproblem could not be resolved in the way that was required in order for Hilbert's project to succeed. So, Alan Turing gave us modern electronic computing with all of its wondrous power, but he had to sacrifice a certain optimism, a certain hope in the possibility of knowledge in order to gain this new and different knowledge. And what happened reminds me of the religious idiom in which some person or authority, gives while also taking away. Like Job in the Hebrew Bible and in the Old Testament of the Christian Bible, who says, the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Or like Martin Luther in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount from the Gospel of Matthew, who gave us the idea of people who give with one hand while taking with the other hand. Turing effectively said, Hilbert, Russell, that great edifice of knowledge you were working towards, you can't have that, but you can have all of this amazing stuff instead. The amazing stuff in question being modern electronic computing. And what results from this, I think, is a peculiar mix of optimism and pessimism. And I think this mix of optimism and pessimism is inherited by AI. Turing, and then subsequently his contemporary John von Neumann, established a vital aspect of computing called universality. And this is the idea that enables general-purpose devices to run a potentially limitless uh, variety of programmes or apps in today's parlance using stores of data and what i think is fascinating is that while advancing this type of universality for machines we may have lost our confidence in other ideas of universality or universalism that apply to humans one might think of Immanuel kant's idea of universalizability which is part of kant's argument that we should behave, we should act as human individuals in ways that could, in principle, be adopted by all humans to the overall benefit of humanity, rather than to the overall detriment of humanity. When universality becomes a word that applies to machines, rather than a word that applies to people, it's as though a whole bundle of human hopes and attributes have been transferred from us to our machines. Which brings me to Alan Turing's 1950 paper, Computing Machinery and Intelligence. And I recommend that you read the paper for yourselves if you haven't done so already. Unlike his 1936 paper, which is quite hard going without a bit of background knowledge, Turing's 1950 paper is very accessible and readable. And I think the paper contains great wit, even though I disagree with much of it. Uh, and the paper seems to me also to be pervaded by a certain melancholy. Admittedly, some of that might be because I'm projecting the facts of Turing's life onto his writing, but I think some of it might be there in what he writes, and I think it might be bound up with this curious mix of optimism and pessimism that I've mentioned. Turing opens his 1950 paper, by asking, can machines think? But then, almost immediately, he replaces this question with another question, along the lines of, can machines plausibly imitate humans? And I don't think we're under any obligation to accept that particular exchange of the one question for the other. I think a case can be made, and Turing concedes that a case can be made. For those two questions, can machines think and can machines plausibly imitate humans, being quite separate questions, each of which deserves to be considered in its own right. And I'm not going to make that case right now. I'm interested in hearing your views and arguments on the matter. But I would urge you to reflect carefully on the so-called imitation game described by Turing, nowadays commonly known as the Turing Test, uh, in which a human interrogator has written exchanges, concurrent or consecutive written exchanges, with two unseen parties, knowing that one of these parties is a human and one of them is a machine, and having to deduce which one is which when both of them are trying to persuade the interrogator that they are in fact the human. Although, in fact, that's the modified form of the scenario. In his uh, initial example, Turing actually considers, more as a parlour game than as a serious experiment, whether it would be possible for a human interrogator having written exchanges with two unseen humans, one man and one woman, to deduce which one is the man and which one is the woman if one of them is trying to convince the interrogator of the truth about their identity and the other one is trying to convince the interrogator of a falsehood about their identity. I note that this is an interesting question to pose in today's circumstances but let's park that and move on to Turing's main scenario in which the human interrogator is exchanging written words with one unseen human, one unseen machine and has to distinguish the one from the other. Now the machine would be a bit different if you set up this experiment now, to what it would have been in 1950, or to what it would have been in the 1960s, which is when the computer scientist Joseph Weizenbaum famously created one of the first ever chatbots, Eliza. Nowadays, instead of some great, slow, lumbering device the size of a room, the machine in the scenario would be something like OpenAI's ChatGPT, or Google's BARD. But Turing anticipates this. Turing draws upon the insights of his earlier 1936 paper to explain that it is sufficient to establish that a computer can, in principle, do certain things, given sufficient resources, in order to then be able to imagine a future scenario, Turing's future, our present, when those resources do become available. So Turing has the machines covered. But what's interesting to consider is whether and in what respect the two humans in Turing's experiment, the interrogator and the other human, would be different now to two humans participating in such an experiment in the 1950s or the 1960s. Because it seems to me that there might be an unspoken assumption about the abstract interchangeability of humans as well as the abstract interchangeability of machines that has been smuggled into the argument by Turing. And to be clear, I'm thinking here not so much of interchangeability across distinctions of sex or gender, but more across time, actually. And I think that whereas in computing the terms or the concepts of interchangeability and universality become near synonymous, when we're thinking about humans, there are richer tensions and relationships between the ideas of universality and interchangeability. Turing raises a number of other interesting questions, including the question of how the idea of a machine thinking relates to the idea of a machine learning. And that has become a very important question with machine learning becoming an important field of study and industry in its own right. Although I would question whether learning is the best word to describe what the machines are actually doing. In the same way that I would question, although I'm about 70 years too late to do so, I would question whether memory is the best word to describe a store of data that's immediately available to a machine. And in the same way that I would question whether a hallucination, in today's AI jargon, is the best word to describe chat GPT asserting something that's badly wrong in an apparently confident manner. These seem to me to be figures of speech that have got way out of hand. Turing also considers what it means if a machine has the capacity to surprise us, which I think is a question that can yield some very interesting insights if we reflect on it in the context of today's generative AI. But let's conclude by looking again at the larger historical context. The project embodied by David Hilbert was undermined by Kurt Gödel and Alan Turing, whose arguments proved fatal to the particular form of knowledge that Hilbert hoped to establish. I can't deny that, much as I might wish to. But I still think it's worth taking inspiration from the spirit and ambition of Hilbert and his contemporaries. I think it's worth trying to rediscover ideas of thinking, learning, intelligence and universality that apply to humans without necessarily applying to machines. Because nowadays, I think we're in danger of replacing David Hilbert's motto we müssen wissen wir werden wissen we must know we shall know with s muss wissen s wird wissen it must know it shall know where the it in question is ai consider for example this edition of the economist which came out last month and whose cover shows rishi sunak in a parody of a vintage computer advert accompanied by the words Brit GPT," how to make Britain an AI superpower. Now, admittedly, when you look at Rishi Sunak next to a computer, it is difficult to tell which one is the human <laughs> and which one is the machine. But I think we need to think carefully about what a phrase like AI superpower really means. We should think about where autonomy and agency should be embodied and situated in this picture. In his 1950 paper, Turing says, and I quote, by the end of the century, the use of words and general educated opinion will have altered so much that one will be able to speak of machines thinking without expecting to be contradicted, end quote. And Turing was quite correct in as much as, in the 21st century, people can speak of machines thinking without expecting to be contradicted. But that particular statement is Turing making a prediction about us, not about our machines. And we still have the freedom, living freedom, to render Turing's prediction wrong. To find credible ways of contradicting those who speak of machines thinking. To demonstrate that we can actually think in ways that machines can't. It's up to us to demonstrate this. It's up to you to demonstrate this. Thank you.
0: you've been listening to the ideas matter podcast our living freedom series recorded at our 2023 summer school you can find out more about living freedom on our website or follow us on instagram and twitter if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app ideas matter is a charity and without our wonderful donors we wouldn't be able to put on the events that we run or produce these podcasts so if you'd like to support our work you can find the donation page on our website any little contribution would be much appreciated If you can't support us financially, but still want to help us out, you can do that by leaving us a rating and a review or sharing this podcast with a friend. It helps us get the word out about our work, and it only takes a minute for you. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode.